Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 367 of the most terrific amateur radio podcast on the internet. This is Linux in the Ham Shack, and we are doing our short topic episodes for tonight. And those short topics cover a wide variety of things tonight. So we should probably just dive right into it. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD. All right. So we have a lead topic. I'm going to try and make this lead topic very short. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just say that there's a certain member of the IRLP team, we'll call him the head guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure he's like the creator. I I imagine he's not the only one that had anything to do with the creation of IRLP, but obviously he's he's the big dude. Um, And I had, uh, I think I've talked on this program, or at least in the Discord, about setting up a portable IRLP node and and all that, getting all that stuff set up, and how much I was enjoying using IRLP. And uh, then I switched over, because I, I still had the node, but then I switched over to uh, All-Star, and I included my Echolink and my IRLP in with my All-Star, because since you can run all this stuff together, why not, right? Consolidates it, allows you to link the three systems together. Seems like a cool thing to be able to do. And that was working great until... Sometime last week when all of a sudden I no longer had access to the IRLP network and I couldn't figure it out. So I emailed them and I said, hey, I can no longer get on the IRLP network. And they said, oh, well, Hamvoip is not a legitimate way to get on the IRLP network. And we pulled your keys and so on. (laughs) So. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, well, they didn't say so long. But I told them so long, <laughs> uh, because if you're going to be if you're going to be that political about it and you know that oligarchical about a a linked network system, um, when there are other and as far as I can tell, better linked repeater systems in the world that don't have these particular issues, then I don't need to be a part of yours and. Um, it just so happens that most of the repeaters in the world that are linked to IRLP are also linked to All-Star. So I figure I haven't lost anything except dealing with IRLP. So, wow. Um, I know there are you can do point-to-point communications pretty easy with IRLP, seemingly easier than um, with... Um, well, no, I take that back. I mean, it's just as easy with any of, any of the All-Star, the Echolink, or the IRLP. Um, and... For the most part, from what I've seen, if you're using one, you're probably using more than one. So, you know, if I want to get in contact with somebody, I'll just use Echolink or IRLP. I mean, Echolink seems to have much wider adoption anyway, since uh, IRLP tethers their licensing system to the purchase of hardware, 
which is already kind of a, a painful thing. Yeah. So, but I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to do ad homonyms. I'm not going to disparage anyone. I'm just going to, I don't know, lightly suggest that if you're getting into this repeater linking system or, you know, digital net networked radio communication, mm, pick one of the other systems. Don't use IRLP. <laughs> There's a strong endorsement. <laughs> Anything but, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, All Star is so nice, especially the one, the way they have it set up at Hamvoip, Hamvoip.com org net. I think they all work. Um, and like I said, All Star systems seem to be connected to as many systems as IRLP is, if not more. And there are no politics involved that I can see. And the software is open source and it runs on open source hardware. And, you know, so just go that route. And, uh, with the N8AR devices, the kits for Ham's place where you can get, you know, you can get online on All Star for about the same, maybe a little less than you pay for a proprietary IRLP board, which doesn't even include a radio. Um, kind of seems like a no brainer. I, I kind of wanted to be a part of all the networks. IRLP included, but I'm I'm not getting involved in this kind of hassle. So, yeah, that's 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 not a very uh, neighborly way to uh, treat anybody in the community. It's not, and I'm still trying to figure out how they knew I switched from the actual node to Ham Void. I'm I'm not sure how they figured out I did that. <laughs> spyware <laughs> yeah i mean there must be something about it some part of the actual irlp operating system that reports something back that hamvoip doesn't uh but if you want to have an interesting read check out uh do a google search for hamvoip uh and irlp and you'll have a long interesting email conversation thread uh that'll It'll make you smile probably for a half hour. <laughs> uh, all about the politics of IRLP. So uh, anyway, that's that's all I wanted to say about that. Just thought it should be brought out. And since I have a voice that that reaches more people than Cheryl sitting across from me, <laughs> yeah, at least five or six. Yeah, le- yeah, at least six or seven people heard this. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're so, we're good. You yep. got the world covered. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, moving on from the lead topic, and let's get into some amateur radio stuff. And Bill's got all kinds of things in here to talk about, so let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we have the the big one that's been making the rounds: a notice of proposed rulemaking, FCC twenty one one six. Yeah. So, unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard of the possibility of a fifty dollar FCC licensing fee for the amateur radio service. Oh my god. <laughs> um. So yeah, I was just reading the the notice that went out here, and uh, let me just give you some uh, copy of it. In this notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, notice. I'm not sure why that's twice. Uh, we seek comment on the new application fee schedule proposing significant changes to the commission's exist, oh, sorry, existing fee schedule in both types of applications and other processes covered by the fee requirement and also in the amount of fees proposed. The new fee schedule and proposed fees impact stakeholders in every industry overseen by the commission. The new and revised fees policy uh, to uh, fees apply to a broad spectrum of filings processed by the commission, including applications, modifications, and renewals of wireless television and satellite licenses, applications to participate in auctions to tariff filings, 
<sighs> formal complaints <laughs> and certain petitions. As we explained below, the changes we may initiate today derive from the modification to the commission's uh, sta- uh, uh, commission's statutory application fee authority made by the Ray Baums Act of 2018. Very scary stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah, so you, everybody was asked to make comment and propose comments and stuff like that. And of course, you know how that works is all blind comments, except for you can see how many people actually leave comments on it. And I was, I was trying to dig into this a little bit further. Um, and I started looking at the Ray bomb uh, act, which if you don't know what that is, this is important because, uh, it's called the repack airwaves yielding better access for users of modern services act of 2018. That's that's it's very wordy, so that's why they made it Ray Bomb. <laughs> Ray Ray is the bomb. Yeah, and I was I, I was kind of digging through it, and I'm I'm still not seeing where they can do the fifty dollar fee in in any circumstance. Period. There's two sections in the in the act that kind of talk about um, these items. One is the the amount, the dollar amount. And they have it specified in the in section two, the threshold for adjustment. And it says the commission may not adjust a fee under paragraph one if, in the case of the fee of the current amount, which is less than two hundred dollars, the adjustment would result in a change in the current amount of less than ten dollars. So I don't see, you know, we can't have changes more than ten dollars. <laughs> you're, you're assuming people are going to read the rules. Yeah, so it's like, well, okay, I could see how they could possibly charge ten or something like that, you know. And the same thing if the fee's over two hundred, they can't change the fee for more than you know, or amount less uh, less than five percent. So, well, I guess you know, amount less than ten dollars. So I guess it maybe has to be. It could be fifty, but if you go down into the exceptions, <laughs> which is section D, part one, section C, or whatever subsection C. Uh, the exemptions to this are, are specifically outlined as a non-commercial radio station or a non-commercial television station. And I'm pretty certain that's exactly what the amateur radio service is, is non-commercial. And we're defined as such by Part 97. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought that was the whole point of the amateur radio service was that it was, no, it was non-commercial. Yeah, I mean, I know that they... They, th- well, the idea is they think <laughs> that this over encompassing thing that says, yeah, we have to start charging everybody for everything. But it's, it's pretty clear that it's not specifically accl- applicable. Um, and this includes application fees where we're specifically excluded. A non-commercial radio station is excluded and regulatory, uh, sorry, regulatory, uh, fees as well. They are, sp- Specifically excluded, not only as a non-commercial radio station, but also specifically as an amateur radio operator licensed under Part 97. So we are not applicable to fees of any regulatory fee. So we can't get charged for any regulatory fee. Um, An application fee, I would still think (laughs) that we would fall under a non-commercial radio station. Um but we're not a broadcast, so that might be loosey-goosey there. But they also say that you can't – They uh, the exceptions also include uh, nonprofit entity licenses, so we know what that is, um, or special emergency radio services. So 
that sort of founds again kind of like uh <laughs> kind of <laughs> like, like the, the amateur, amateur service. service yeah and i'm not sure why we weren't specifically excluded in this particular section uh, section here in the application fees um which might be the way that they think that they can go ahead and charge us money um i'm you know i have to say i'm not really a, a terribly against it um but i think it's a bit much i mean obviously they haven't changed the licensing fees uh, the fee schedule hasn't changed what, what, what did i write there 30 years or something like that <laughs> yeah the current application fee framework was established more than 30 years ago by congress um so yeah it hasn't been changed in a long time and this seems like a pretty drastic change and specifically affecting uh the amateur service which is non non a commercial not a commercial radio service and it also provides uh, emergency services and public service. So it seems to me that, you know, just in the wording of the, the Ray Bomb Act, that, you know, we would be most likely excluded. So if they were to institute any fees, I would think a, a legal case would probably have to be brought by like the ARRL or something like that to uh, to get that decision reversed and, and get the language amended to ensure that uh, the amateur radio service is is excluded from any fee collection um i think that'd be a way easier battle than the whatever the prb one or whatever that <laughs> they spent so much money on and and couldn't succeed through uh through uh congress in the last few sessions that they tried yeah so like you i'm not necessarily against the p either i think um it, it's not prohibitive but i mean if it goes against the guidelines for actually establishing a fee I mean, obviously, you have to abide by by that. So, yeah, I would say there's probably enough meat in the Ray Bomb Act that you know a, a decent case could probably be brought forth. And uh, yeah, obviously, the cost of litigation is is not worth the fifty dollar collection fee on renewals. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> not not the not at the cost of cost for those uh, DC attorneys to operate. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let. Uh, Let's not get too buried down in that. I guess we'll see where it goes. I'm sure the AWRL will be on top of it if uh, it comes to a head. And they, I'm sure, since you've found these these points in the Ray Bomb Act, that they're aware of them as well, and uh, will uh, will deal with the litigation accordingly. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, and, they have made a decision, so it's not like it's there. But like, I right. I would think that. In, in people's discussions on the request for proposed action, <laughs> they would probably mention some of this. It would be uh, would probably be useful information. Maybe, maybe they just floated it out so they get a whole bunch of new hams. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, not. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think the numbers. FCC really gives a crap about how many hams are. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, moving on from Ray Bomb and fifty dollar application and renewal fees for licenses here in the uh, good old U.S. of A. Let's talk about a project from Andy G Seven UHN. And uh, Bill, I'll let you go ahead and take this one too, since you threw it in here. Yeah, I saw this, and I, I, I was gonna, I was thinking about putting this in the LHS area, but I was kind of short on uh, on on amateur radio stories. So I thought this was kind of a cool little project he worked on here. Uh, this is the uh, yeah the FT eight one seven companion display and controls, and I'm assuming that you could 
probably get this to work on the 8818 as well. Um, but you probably want to check out the website. But yeah, Andy's uh, project has been making the rounds. Uh, he's been on uh, Hackaday and uh, the SWLING blog. SWLing blog? I don't know what you're going to call it. Swing. Uh, Swing, swing, <laughs> swing. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, he and he uh, finally uh, has an article on his own website and where he writes, "I like spending time with my FT eight one seven ND in the great outdoors, but it always it always seems like the Yezu's choices of functions on the ABC buttons has me fiddling around all day on that tiny front panel." Uh, when I want to lower the power for a tune signal or raise the power back up for a QSO, switch the CW filter in and out, use the AB, which is your uh, VFOs, and the A equals B keys to help me browse around the bands. I just need a couple more buttons, don't we all? Uh, so I started, <laughs> so I started thinking about adding a small control panel that would could be programmed to send a couple of commands to the radio via cat via the cat port. Maybe with a little display alongside with some new buttons, effectively adding some new soft keys. Now, that thought quickly led me to uh, KA7OEI's amazing work in documenting the FT817 serial command interface. And it wasn't long before I was reading the FT817's frequency on a small OLED that was lying around the workshop. I then realized the utility of including some of the front panel information in a display that can be more easily read than the radio's front panel with the rig. When the rig is on the ground, uh, my normal slash P operating position. So a bit of bre- uh, breadboard prototyping and a couple of KiCad tutorials later and voila. So yeah, within the link in the show note, you can go check it out. You probably have already seen this on Hackaday or possibly SWLing, but if you haven't, check it out. It's a cool little display, uh, and, and obviously soft buttons to do exactly what he said. And he's got a big to do list there as well of things he's thinking of adding to this project. But, uh, on his site, he has all the resources and everything else, uh, including, let's see, uh, what, what has he got here? He's got a bill of materials, the PCB files, the Arduino code, and the tutorials he used actually <clears throat> to get, uh, to that point. So his to do list includes a bunch of other little, little doodads, uh, PCB rework and stuff like that. So yeah, this definitely looks like a really cool project for, uh, for those owners of those little 817s that are very popular. And, and probably, like I said, the 818s are, are probably very similar in the cat control. I know when this popped up in the discord, several of the folks who are in there, who, uh, apparently own FT 817s were all on board with getting this, uh, thing set up. It looks like a pretty easy kit to put together. Or, or a project, because I mean, it's not put out as a kit, at least not yet. Um, but it looked like it's going to have some pretty, pretty significant uptake. And uh, as it gets better, I'm sure there'll be more out there. Yeah. And of course, you know, Andy's a listener of the program here and uh, is also in the Discord quite, uh, quite often. And that's where we heard from it first. <laughs> and it's always, it was always kinda, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of rolling around in my head. I was like, I, well, I know I saw that somewhere. And of course, then, yeah, of course, it was right on Hackaday and everywhere else. So, yeah, great job, Andy, and, and getting the word out on that. And, you know, now it's even here. So we have talked about it as well. Hey, very cool. Well, that's all we've got in our straight up amateur radio topics for tonight. But we're going to roll steadily and swiftly on into open source. And uh, I threw a couple of stories in here that were interesting. The third one, pay attention if you're in the Discord for the third story, because we might we might have a little bit of a discussion about the third one. So, <laughs> Uh-oh. so anyway, the first one is a pretty straightforward story. We've mentioned Huawei 
many, many times. And I know Bill and I had a discussion earlier about, is that how you pronounce that? And I'm like, I don't know. That's what I'm going with. So, <laughs> yes, it's that Huawei. Yeah. Huawei. You know, the one that everyone wants to ban way yeah, <laughs> or yeah. and, and, and bay. Yeah. That one. <laughs> uh, swing the Huawei and bay Amorhey. Yeah, we prefer Cisco's NSA backdoors to China's Huawei backdoors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and speaking of backdoors, Huawei officially launched the Hongmeng OS 2.0 system at the HDC Developers Conference. Today, the system released the developer beta version for large screens, watches, and cars. That's what we want. We want Huawei systems in our cars. <laughs> the company also said that it will release the mobile version in December. After the launch, smartphones will fully support the Hongmeng 2.0. And this is open source, by the way. That's uh, why we're talking about it. In addition, the official website of Huawei Harmony OS is now online, and the source code is available for download. The global version of Huawei Hongmeng OS is Harmony OS. And I've got a link from this story, which was on Giz China. So I don't know if that's like Giz, Gizmodo for China. Or <clears throat> yeah, it could be. Something you're not supposed to feed after midnight, or I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but I also have a link to the download site if you actually want to get the code. So there you go. Oh, that's cool. They released the code earlier than was thought, because I thought they had originally thought that the code would come out in October. So that's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, a month early. I guess if, if people are interested in this, uh, check it out. You know where to go. All right. The second story, Cheryl, you want to read a story? Sure. Oh, wow. You said yes. I can't believe it. You don't, you don't normally say yes. Okay. I'll say are you that. not Facebooking? No. Oh, good. Well, you can read the second story then. I've been shopping on Amazon. <laughs> okay. You, maybe you should just go back to Facebook. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Back on Facebook. Back on Facebook. You know. <laughs> I mean, uninstall it Amazon app quick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to check yeah. the credit cards up quick. Or I've, I've been uh, I've been getting a lot of use out of Amazon myself lately, so it's okay. All right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm spending all your money. Okay, that's good because I'm spending yours. So I guess we're really great. Right. Yep. All righty then. <laughs> so our next story is Square fights patent trolls on killing Bitcoin adoption. American financial services firm Square has been a major proponent of cryptocurrency, from its cash app being a popular place to buy Bitcoin to its Square crypto division, awarding several grants to developers of free open source projects. Today, Square Crypto unveiled its next step in its push for the continued growth and well-being of the industry, launching the Cryptocurrency Open Patent Alliance, or COPA. Copa continues to focus on open source technologies that Square Crypto started with its grants, but broadens its horizons by inviting other crypto industry companies to join. To do so, excuse me, to do so, companies must pledge to never assert patents on what Square calls foundation cryptocurrency technology, quote unquote, unless it's to defend those technologies. And furthermore, members will contribute to a shared patent library that allows fellow members the ability to use those patents defensively against outside patent trolls, which Square says will give even small companies a shield to protect themselves against patent aggressors. And the source for this came from decrypt.co. Yes, I thought that was interesting. We, we routinely talk about cryptocurrency and blockchain and things like that on this program, and if you're if you're a small business owner, you probably use Square right now. And Square, I didn't realize was was heavily invested in cryptocurrency. 
So this is kind of cool. And any story that talks about uh, dealing with patent trolls, I'm definitely into. So, <laughs> uh, so take that for what you will. If you don't use cryptocurrency, then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, one Bitcoin is uh, worth ten grand right now. Ten four thirty nine. Yeah, so you can you can mine your point zero 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 one crypt you know bitcoins <laughs> with your high powered multi GPU computers. All right. Anyway, moving on to the the controversial controversial story. <laughs> Uh, we'll see if anybody has anything to say about this after I get done reading it. I, I cut it down as much as I could. There's a lot more to this in the actual article, but it goes why Linux needs a flagship distribution in a recent podcast from Noah Chalia, co-host of destination Linux. He says, you can go to a Best Buy and purchase a computer, but depending on who made that computer, when that computer was made, what software was available at the time, it all affects the quality and the experience you get as an end user. That struck me hard, and the me in this case, the I, is the uh, author of the article, not Noah. Uh, it also made me realize that it needs to be said again, Linux needs a flagship distribution. Imagine you're a third-party software company, and you want to port your number one selling title, <coughs> and you want to port your number one selling title to Linux. What desktop do you port to? What package manager? Do you develop with Snap, Flatpak, AppImage? What about the kernel? The challenges are many. Now, imagine a single distribution has been chosen from the hundreds of currently available distributions to represent Linux to hardware manufacturers, vendors, and software companies. That one Linux distribution would be used by hardware manufacturers and software companies to create computers and software guaranteed to run on Linux. The distribution would have only one desktop environment, one package manager, one init system, and the current stable version of the Linux kernel. Users could also download this Linux distribution and use it at will, but the primary purpose would be to make things easier for manufacturers and developers. I realize this is a big ask. Every time I've ever broached the subject, I am pummeled from all sides with pushback about how the greatest thing going for Linux is choice. Choice is part of what brought me to Linux in the first place, but that doesn't mean I want to foist that choice onto consumers who've never used or even heard of Linux. Given that's the audience we should be focusing on at the moment, a flagship, limit, <laughs> a flagship Linux is long overdue. This is what Linux needs. It's what will help make mass acceptance a possibility. And that, <laughs> that came from Tech Republic. Oh, yeah, it sounds like it would come from them. <laughs> so, so, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, ugh. <laughs> this is this is like so deep uh you know why can't we have a flagship computer making company that makes a computer that doesn't suck so we don't have to have so many stupid choices of really crappy underpowered hardware versus like high-end gaming hardware why does it that you know uh like you know amd graphics cards go bad fast because they're crappy but like you got to buy the latest nvidia one for eight hundred dollars so you can play a game that runs at five fps on your intel graphics card because intel makes the processor um yeah i mean you know we got bigger bigger fish to fry than which damn linux distribution to have i mean if you really look at uh if you want to call everybody else's flagship distribution a flagship distribution i mean mac os would be the purest one because they actually control the hardware but like if you look at all the installs that all the various manufacturers do of like let's say i don't know windows 10 
um, with all the bullcrap bloatware that they throw on there to support their hardware and some of their custom drivers and all this other bullcrap that they throw on there that makes Windows 10 a very bad experience in the most in the most part for people on these various systems. I mean, you can find, go through Amazon. We just talked about, go through Amazon. Just start looking at reviews for any computer, an Asus, uh, you know, pick of the break, big brands, Asus, Lenovo, uh, Acer. Uh, <laughs> they all have problems. Even Dell has problems. You know, a lot of people, you know, hate the stupid Dell support app that comes up and, you know, does driver checks and stuff like that because it conflicts with what Intel says your computer needs. Um, and this is in Windows 10, a flagship distribution. <laughs> um, so it's all bullcrap. Uh, you know, the nice part about Linux is, is that you could actually develop your Linux install to be specifically optimized for every bit of the hardware that's in there. You know, if, if, if a flagship distribution is to have a, uh, a, a fat kernel that's overly compiled with stuff in there that you don't have in your computer just so it supports it. That's not, I mean, nobody wants that. I mean, that, those are your, you know, typical, I don't want to say it, but Ubuntu users. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's already built in there. I mean, go look how big the kernel file is. Go look what the kernel settings are. Go in and try to compile your kernel and see all the checkboxes that are checked on that you don't need for your piece of hardware. All that's right. all, that's all bloat. When, when was the last time you actually tuned a kernel? Um, not in a long time. Yeah, but. exactly. <laughs> That's 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 why somebody came up with the modular kernel architecture because everyone decided they didn't want to tune kernels anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but uh, but that's nice. That's a nice part about it, right? Because you just put a, you put it on a flash drive, everything comes up. You know, you have all the kernel modules now that just kind of pop on when you need them. But like your base level stuff's kind of already in there. Otherwise, you know, yeah, ninety percent of the computers would wig out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't see it because like a flavor is the, is the, the game and they do it with windows 10 as well. I mean, everybody's windows 10 is a little different. Um, go buy, you know, go buy five different laptops, five different vendors guaranteed the, the startup process is slightly different and all the stuff that's running on the computer already is slightly different. Even probably with the same hardware, it's going to be all slightly different because the vendors do crap that they shouldn't be doing. So you don't see any case for one distribution that developers develop to and that people who want choice can go do whatever they want to do, but they can they can be assured that a person well, can be assured that if a software package is released, that it will run on this particular distro. What I would like, and I think most people would, would maybe like it, I don't know, um, is the issue the issue we're trying to always solve is the software that gets installed afterwards right we're talking about the distribution not the linux kernel part yeah yeah i mean we're well, yeah, we're talking about basically the app the app center how, how we get apps on there and and is that app up to date is it the latest greatest is it you know can i go right to you know wherever I got my app from and, and get the latest version is it easy to install. Is there maintainability with that? But um, the thing is like that, that sort of architecture with like snaps and flat packs. The problem with that is you have the same issue that you had with these programs that were developed for Java that had to be packaged <laughs> with their entire runtime environment to get them to work. Um, yeah, so, but so you I have mean, to do the same thing unless there, unless there's some way to get a thinner abstraction 
of but these snaps and stuff. Yeah. I would say that the performance difference on a snap versus native is probably not that big a difference. Neither yeah, that's flat just back because or you're app image. Throwing resources at it. Just because computers are stupid <laughs> fast anymore, that's no excuse <laughs> well, to do I mean, things in a dumb way. Well, I mean, have you seen a website lately? <laughs> I was telling you today when I was trying to cut and paste that article that there was there were six paragraphs of text and four hundred pages of CSS. <laughs> yeah, and five thousand pages of ads all right. over their TechCrunch's website and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I I see I see the 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 desire to maybe have like the enterprise solution for it. I mean, we do have enterprise solutions for Linux. I mean, companies offer that like, oh, gee, I don't know, Ubuntu <laughs> or uh, Red Hat. <laughs> you know, they both have enterprise solutions. Um, I mean, so like your big distributions, your flagship distributions are there, whether or not they have adoption. You know, I mean, Dell installs Ubuntu on their computers and ships them out. Um, Lenovo installs fedora on their computers and ships them out um system 76 only installs linux on their computers as pop os and ships them out um so there's your flagship distro right there pop os on system 76 go get it yeah i mean (laughs) but like there's people that don't like gnome like me (laughs) you know i appreciate everything they do over there at uh, system 76 they make really cool looking computers and there's a lot of good engineering that goes into those designs and stuff like that and pop os is is great but like yeah i just i i hate gnome and you know you're not gonna get anybody that's gonna anybody that likes linux it likes linux for very specific reasons and it's not to be pushed into a single box right and i think that's why this article sort of unchecks that box and talks about pushing linux on people who don't necessarily like it or use it and yeah. that's, what, that's what chrome os does right <laughs> <laughs> so we already have the ubiquitous flagship distribution that gets shipped out on $200 laptops all the time. <laughs> I suppose, but uh, no one's going to start coding to Chrome OS. <laughs> yeah, they do all the time. Have you seen a website lately? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> web web app is not what I'm cause talking Pro- about. Progressive web app? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so what's driving a lot of your phone apps and everything else and things you use? An Amazon app is a progressive web app you're using on your iPhone. I don't see GT5 as a web app. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> uh, it'd be an awesome web app. <laughs> Go, like, you know, run over some hookers and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah. You heard it here first. GTA 5 is a web app. So. Yeah, that would be awesome. Way better than Fortnite as a web app. Come on. you know, Or not Fortnite. Is it Fortnite? Yeah, yeah Fortnite. Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, like Don says, CentOS, another another en- uh, enterprise. Now, I don't know if you're, if the you know, flagship is equating to enterprise distribution. I, I don't uh, think so. I think it's a different mindset behind this this concept of a flagship distro. It's one it's one that it's sort of like the one distro to rule them all in the sense that if you if somebody creates an application that runs on Linux, it will run on this distribution. And that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily have the same space as an enterprise Linux because there's a whole lot of crap that doesn't run on enterprise Linux. <laughs> well, I mean, if if we go and we just beat all these down, all these all these distributions down to their core systems. I mean, you know, seriously, what do you you have Debian? You know, Debian powers just about uh, I don't know. 
powers ubuntu <laughs> and everything else uh mint <laughs> a bunch of other little uh, you know boutique os is all right on top of you know either ubuntu who rides on top of debian or you know whatever so i mean it's debian and then you have uh fedora well which is all red hat yeah. right and you have that split is what open Suze and um well, and just Red Hat, I guess, and stuff like that. CentOS. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, there's not very many, like when you break them down to their core functions and pieces and stuff like that. Yeah, there are very many choices along all those different paths. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like distro hopping. It's so much fun because I like get tired of Ubuntu after a while and I like going to Fedora or I like going to SolS, you know, SolS. And, and I can't wait for, uh, Serpent OS to, uh, to come out as well. So like that'll be my next boutique OS to jump onto. Well, you might want to read this whole article then because the author is also a big distro hopper. And so maybe reading, uh, reading the whole thing might put it in some different context. But anyway, good discussion. Cool. <laughs> So, yeah, like I said, that came from Tech Republic. Link will be in the show notes. And now let's move on to Linux in the Ham Shack. And Bill is going to tell us about Raspberry Pis for Ham Radio. This this sounds like, like good stuff here. Yeah, this is uh, really good. This was also featured on uh, Hackaday. This is Raspberry Pi for Ham Radio uh, uh, via Anthony F4GOH or KF4GOH uh, blog. And he says, since 2012, the Raspberry Pi Nano computer has become an increasingly important part of the DIY and maker community. The increase in power of the Raspberry Pi over the years has offers very interesting possibilities for radio amateurs. Indeed, it allows not to permanently monopolize on a PC in the decoding of frames with software like WSJTX, FL Digi, etc., without forgetting the possibility to control the Raspberry Pi remotely and thus being able to work outside the Radio Shack, as I can sometimes do on my couch. Moreover, this nano computer is now widely used in any hotspot, like DMR or D-Star. And we've talked about that as well. And uh, on the blog here, he's got uh, tutorials, a seven-part PDF uh, that's specifically designed for beginners wishing to acquire the basics in the installation of the Raspberry Pi through the use of radio software. And he goes into uh, separate sections here, and one is a Raspbian operating system with the graphic interface and um, how to prepare it, how to get the IP address, how to access uh, your Raspberry Pi remotely via PuTTY, WinSCP, and VNC, and all that good stuff, back up your uh, MSD card, um, as well as connecting your transceiver uh, to uh, the Raspberry Pi, doing sound management, CAT system interface management. Uh, radio software installation like FL Digi, WSJTX, JTDX, JS8 Call, Grid Tracker, CQR Log, my favorite, haha, QSS TV and GPredict, uh, GQRX installation, RTL SDR key installation, and how to uh, listen to HF and VHF with GQRX, FT8 coding with uh, GQRX and WSJTX, and uh, first steps with uh, GNU Radio. So a lot of good stuff in there. He also has uh, operating the Raspbian Lite uh, operating system without a GUI and how to get that configured, um, basic commands and file access rights, and uh, doing Whisper. Uh, and also, he has a section on installing and using OpenWebRx, which, of course, we've talked about in the past as well, which is a cool little uh, web-driven uh, SDR application for your uh, for your SDR. 
So yeah, uh, go over and check his blog out, Ham Project's uh, blog. It, it was linked as well over on uh, Hackaday. And uh, I mean, obviously we talk about the Raspberry Pi so often. <laughs> it is the ubiquitous computer everywhere. Um, so uh, yeah, if you haven't got a Pi yet, go buy one and then uh, start uh, looking at uh, you know getting it set up to do some stuff. And I guess the real reason why I did that, because I also wanted to mention that I haven't started playing with it yet, but I did download the Raz, the RigPi, RigPi software. And like I mentioned uh, to the guys in the chat room, uh, when I found out, <clears throat> you can just go to MFJ and pay 30 bucks and download the software. And if you already have your Raspberry Pi 3, um, you can just uh, load all that stuff that's pre-installed and ready to go and get your little rig pie going uh, with all your own connecting devices. Like I already have a ham key here and I have a, uh, or a win key, a USB hit win key. And I have a, uh, you know, of course the good old sound box, the, uh, the uh, uh, Tigertronics signal link. So uh, I have everything I need to get it going. And uh, I hopefully will have that, uh, ready and running by the time we have our uh, deep dive on uh, remote ham radio so there's an easy way to get into it you don't have to buy the 250 dollar or 290 dollar box whatever it is with all the cables and stuff like that if you're like me already have like all the parts you can do it for 29.95 <laughs> very cool so while you're while you're in the process of talking about the rig buy the the d um what do they call it? Deconstructed rig pie. <laughs> yes. Um, we can talk about some new releases from over in the FL, the fast light toolkit application space. Yeah. Yeah. We got a couple of basically these are flash topics. Uh, I just want to mention if you're not on the Linux ham mailing list, uh, you might want to just join it just to kind of track some stuff going on over there. The developer of uh, FL, well, the FL products like FL Digi, FL Message, Rig, Arc, all the all, all the FL products. Uh, David W1HKJ, he's always releasing random stuff over there, <laughs> <laughs> or random releases uh, versions and stuff like that. So uh, these are two uh, two things he's posted uh, just in the past week. Uh, FL Message 4.017 is released. This is a maintenance release. This fixes a seg fault on the send bug, uh, test for empty string, and the ARQ log, and it fixes a bunch of memory leaks he found in the source code. So uh, check that out if you uh, use FL Message for anything. Uh, FL Rig, uh, he has an alpha out for that. He uh, changed to a memory dialog user interface. Oh, he changed the memory dialog user interface. He made it have larger font, uh, header line for the browser. Uh, a comment size was increased to 255 characters, and it has a resizable dialog. And that's kind of a cool little quickie interface for like, if you got, you know, want your rig set up for uh, doing a net or something like that, you can just double click it or uh, I don't know, I can't remember, it's right click or something like that. And it automatically just, you know, changes your rig right to that setting for, so you don't have to have memories in your radio itself. <laughs> you can actually just have memories in your FL rig control and uh, it'll just go right there. And of course, you can swap off obviously between rigs and still have those shared memories and stuff like that. If you have multiple HF rigs or or what have you plugged in there, but uh, that's available out there now. So that's one point three point five one point one seven. Oh, that's a that's a whole mouthful of uh, semantic uh, versioning there. Um, so yeah, yeah, check out the Linux ham mailing list. Uh, a couple of links uh, to those emails were uh, are listed there, so you can check those out. All right, very cool. And I'm still waiting for the next release of WSJTX because I want all that, that cool stuff they talked about. 
So (laughs) I don't know if it's the development cycle that's really slow or anything. Do they have an alpha channel somewhere? I I don't. They don't share that. They used to have that um, that in the PPA and Launchpad, but they've uh, since then they're no longer developing against that. So they don't they don't push any builds out there. At least not that I've seen, or nobody's maintaining it. All right. Well, come on, WSGTX. Where's two point three? I want it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm sure it's getting close because they've been talking about it a lot and that's also a mailing list if you're not already on it um you know you can definitely join it and do a lot of watching yeah i've been i've been on the wsgtx one you said the other one was linux ham i think i'm on that one too i just i don't ever pay attention to it i gotta start doing that all right so that means we have come down sadly to the end of our topics for this episode of the program but that means we have arrived at the social media roundup and we want to make sure we mention all the folks who are supporting the program in one way or another. We can't uh, obviously list all of the listeners. We'd be here all night. Um, and also we don't know who they are. <laughs> uh, but if you're a supporter of the program, we're going to, we're going to enumerate you now and also let you know who's, uh, recently come on board, uh, via our social media platforms. Okay. Is that done? Nope, nope, nope. Wow, it's going to work again. It's going to work, yep. Uh, Technology. He always gives me the crap. It stuff. sucks. Yeah, so. It's my mantra. Technology sucks. I'm going to get it like tattooed on my forearm. Or your forehead or whatever. No, forehead. <laughs> Face tattoos are just a no. Uh, I told you about the guy. The other yeah, time, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. We, we know. <laughs> anyway, social media roundup. All right. So let's get on with it. So this time for our Patreons, we have Richard Gordon, Andy Webster, Cubicle Nate, Darren King, David Jakeway, Donald Gever, uh, Douglas Redder, Erna Gastalis, Herb Garcia, John Spriggs, Peter Caffrey, Paul Griffith, Randolph Smith, Robert Pitt, Samuel Vimes, Steve Metcalf, Steve Sainer, William Heckelman, and Jonas Rulo. For subscriptions, we have Howard Dittmer, which is new. Yay. We have Mark Farrell, A. Taylor, Peter Spots, Robert Black, Randolph Smith, Robert Halliday, James Lewis, Fred Cole, Michael Burdak, Alan Wilson, Ronald Ike, Michael Connolly, Steve Biella, Jim McKenzie, Dylan Engel, Johnny Kinsey, Robert Yerke, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Thor Wiegman, Todd Bowers, Kevin Ivey, John Clark, Bill Collins, Jeff Zimmerman, Tony Coberly, Roger Pereira, Jeffrey Boris, Michael Carey, Steve Hepler, and Michael Jopling. We have Eric Nelson on Facebook. On Twitter, we have at L. Llanos at Ed2DBJ, or excuse me, DJB, at Dub Hologram, at HamChat Forum, at VA3VGR, at KD8JBV. JBG. Oh, we're gonna have that problem. Yeah, we're gonna have this this issue this week. Yeah, what was it that I couldn't get last time? (laughs) I don't remember what it was, but yeah, you you tried to Hotel Bravo Foxtrot Brown Sugar (laughs) Dunesbury. Yeah, Yeah, bacon sugar, bacon sugar (laughs) Dunesbury. And at Y O eight T N B. Uh, for YouTube, we have Matt Young, Denton Larson, Barry Benikoff, and Lino Casu. On the mailing list, we have Howard Dittmer. And that's it. There were no merchandise sales. There were no merchandise sales. And all the merchandise sales that we had have been shipped out, so everybody should have those, I would think, by now. Oh, yeah, because they went out last week, right? Uh, or, yes, I think so. Yeah, it was last week, yeah. So. Yeah, so everybody should have whatever they ordered. 
So thanks to all of those orders from before. Thanks to everybody who listens to the program. And thank you to everybody who was in the chat room tonight. We should probably let people know who those folks were. We had Tony K4XSS, Ed N2XDD, Don KC9ZMY, Don KB2YSI, Don, Don, and Don, uh, Ted WA0EIR, and Gene BX8AAD. And we haven't seen uh, Tom and for HAI in a while, so we haven't uh, been able to do the thing. <laughs> Yay! Aww. Yeah, I know it's it's sad. Well, maybe he'll show up here. Well, we did switch dates, so maybe maybe Thursdays are bad for time. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, thanks once again for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been the short topic episode number three hundred and sixty-seven of Linux in the Hamshack. I am Russ K five TUX. I'm Cheryl W five MOO, and I'm Bill NE four RD seventy three. for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS Live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash LHS podcast on the Freenode network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or hand Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism.
in the Ham Shack and the Linux in the Ham Shack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.